0: There ain't nothing you can tell me that I ain't heard before. So, come on, what happened? Well, what happened was I I took her son and I I dressed him up like a girl and I talked him into playing with me.
1: Stay out, you sicko! We don't want your kind in here. Boy, what a happy hour. Well, at least I beat the check. To win a championship, a girl's soccer team has a secret weapon. A girl who's actually a boy dressed as a girl. This week, we talk about salesmen's confidence levels, why it's a bad idea to let your hair down during a soccer game, and why every movie needs the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. We also share our thoughts on Zack Snyder's Justice League before finding out if Ladybugs stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut. And Alan says as a father, blah, blah. It's the test of time. James
0: and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time. James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast, where we look at older movies and see, do these still hold up today? Do they stand the test of time? Joining me, as always, is my friend, the editor of this podcast, the guy who edits the podcast to make it look like only
1: I mispronounce words. Welcome, Alan Noah. That's not what I do. What I do is make it seem like you only mispronounce five or six words as opposed to 88. Like You should be thanking me. I know that you won't, but you're welcome.
0: Yeah, uh, it's just ridiculous. I never mispronounce anything.
1: <laughs> How you doing, Al? There's some good news from you. What's going on? Oh, you're referring to the fact that I got both doses of the COVID vaccine. I got shot one and shot two, I mean, not like in a row, you know, they were separated by a couple weeks, four weeks to be exact. Uh, But I'm getting there. I'm almost at the fully immune stage. I really do feel like we have, as a society, like the collective we, have missed out on like some cool shorthand for like, made an appointment for the vaccine, got my first dose, got my second dose, now I'm fully immune. Like there should have been like some like... M1 if you got Moderna or like something. I don't know. That's terrible. That's not clever at all. But there should have been something that someone more clever than I could have come up with. Uh, But I got my second shot and here comes a segue. Zack Snyder got a second shot at Justice League. And I know you want to talk about it and... I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the movie. I have to be honest with you, though. To me, the story of, like, how this movie came to exist is way more interesting than the movie itself. Like, why is this a thing that exists in the world now, the Snyder Cut? Like, it's kind of bonkers. I, I agree. Uh, a movie that the two
0: of us uh, really like, uh, Superman 2, filmed by the director Richard Donner. When Superman 2 was 80% done, Richard Donner was fired by the producers, and then they hired this guy Richard Lester, and uh, he finished the film, and he wound up like, reshooting a lot of it, and there's like half of a Richard Donner cut, and and half of uh, the Richard Lester's film that, that kind of makes this Superman 2. And for years... There was this rumor that somewhere in a vault uh, in Warner Brothers, there exists this so-called Richard Donner cut uh, of the film that's totally different. They finally released the Richard Donner cut, and you know it was kind of a, like a fascinating. Like, oh, okay, you watch it and you go, huh, that's interesting. What they might have done, but this time we actually got a completely different film.
1: Um, did we
0: though? Did we? A completely different film? No, not not a completely different film, but I think a very different film than the one that we got. I mean, the plot as it stands is kind of the same thing, but, you know, Superman 2, the the plot is the same, but a very different film that that Richard Donner had envisioned. And I think it's very clear that Zack Snyder had uh, envisioned a very different film.
1: Yeah, I think Zack Snyder had different intentions, and you can clearly see that the 2017 Justice League felt like a Frankenstein of two different directors with two different visions. And, you know, like, cool, the fact that Zack Snyder finally got to make his movie, but the fact that it exists is just, like, crazy to me, like— Zack Snyder made Man of Steel, and that was like his entree into the DC universe, and he was going to be like the guy. He was in charge of making a connected universe with DC superheroes. They were going to try to mimic what Marvel had done, and he makes a Superman movie that I certainly thought was meh. And a lot of other people agreed it was not the global, huge, number one movie of the year dominating blockbuster that Warner Brothers hoped it would be. But then they said, no, no, we're going to give Zack Snyder another chance. He's going to make a movie with Batman and Superman. Whoa, the two biggest superheroes ever. And that movie was meh. And then they doubled down on him again. They let him make another movie, a Justice League movie. This is a movie that they've been talking about forever ages that they were going to make a Justice League movie. Finally, they do it. Zack Snyder makes this movie. And the movie we got was meh. And part of it was that Zack Snyder left the production. I don't know exactly how much of it had been filmed, you know, 70, 80%. I, I'm not sure. His daughter. Killed herself. Horrible, horrible tragedy. Uh, His wife was a producer on the movie. She exited it too. And Joss Whedon came in, finished it up. And the finished product was meh. And then Zack Snyder starts saying, well, you know, my version, my director's cut would have been better. And then everyone's like, yeah, I believe that. Why does anyone believe him? Like, how many times have we've gotten fooled by Zack Snyder's got an amazing vision of the DC superheroes? And everyone's like, yeah, let's go! Like, why? Why do we keep on falling for this shit?
0: Well, um, I, I agree with you with a couple things. I, I do agree with you that those films that you said, um, they weren't brilliant. I will say that uh, I, I disagree with just entirely saying they're each meh. I think that each of these films had brilliant parts in them. The Man of Steel uh, soundtrack is fantastic. Um, I think the casting of the DC Universe is brilliant. It's just like Marvel is brilliant at casting, and I think DC was brilliant as well. I think Henry Cavill was great. Uh, Gal Gadot was fantastic. I really liked Ben Affleck as Bruce Wayne and Batman. I I thought he was very good at it. I liked Ezra Miller as The Flash. I I liked uh, Ray Fisher as Cyborg. The one correction I'll say what you said is that people are kind of retconning it, that Joss Whedon came in after the uh, Snyder family tragedy, and that's not really accurate. Um, you're right that Man of Steel and Batman v. Superman were underwhelming in terms of the box office and critical uh, response, and they started filming Justice League like six weeks after, like like immediately they greenlit it after Batman v. Superman, Colin, Dawn of Justice, and they kind of called Joss Whedon in to kind of script doctor it. And, and Zack Snyder was still the director, but once he, once he had to leave for, for his personal reasons, then, you know, Joss Whedon took over everything. You know, when you say Frankenstein, it's it's not a singular person's vision. But the thing that Justice League does, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League does, is it addresses two things. One, it makes you see what he meant by a league. Uh, I mean, I think the, uh, the Joss Whedon version is kind of... The superheroes get their asses kicked until Superman comes and then single-handedly wins the uh, wins the movie for everyone. This film definitely has the oh okay you need Cyborg for this, you need the Flash for this, and you need Wonder Woman. I think it was definitely a much more of a team unit. Cyborg and uh, Flash are much more well uh, fleshed out. Of course, you have four hours to do it as opposed to two hours and change. But I think the the major thing that Zack Snyder's Justice League does is it shows you what his vision of this whole uh connected universe was and another thing i did learn recently they were never intending a 25 or so film universe this apparently was only supposed to be kind of a trilogy or like a four-part film man of steel was sort of like the prologue and then there was supposed to be a trilogy of batman v superman and justice league part one and part two
1: No, Zack Snyder called it a five-part trilogy, which is a contradiction in terms, but whatever, with Man of Steel and Batman v. Superman as like setting the stage, and then there was going to be three Justice League movies. But of course there were going to be Wonder Woman movies and an Aquaman movie and a a Flash and all of these other things happening on the side, even if those movies weren't going to be directed by Zack Snyder. I think DC and Warner Brothers still wanted to have like a bigger film franchise beyond just what Zack Snyder had envisioned. But going back to his vision, I really think that the main thing that's different about the Snyder cut is the epilogue. I mean, like that's the thing that like they reshot. That's the thing that whets the appetite for what he had envisioned and it's a tease because those movies aren't gonna happen and okay it's cool because Batman drops the f-bomb in the epilogue like neat but like I don't know like I just don't see how that is that enticing to people who are like oh my god restore the Snyderverse we need to give this guy more money and let him make more movies no every DC movie he makes is meh why is there this appetite for more I just don't get it. It's so insane to me. And like the reason that it exists is because Warner Brothers launched a streaming platform. This is a good thing to put on HBO Max. You can throw a couple million dollars at it and It can live on a streaming platform. You can't make a four-hour movie and put that in theaters. Are you kidding me? You'd only get like three screenings a day. You would make no money. You know, there are stories that with the 2017 Justice League, the upper brass wanted it to be no longer than two hours because they needed to, you know, have more screenings and things like that. Like, you can't make a four-hour movie. Also, there's a global pandemic that shuts down movie theaters for a year. Everyone's craving new movies, especially big blockbusters, especially superhero movies. The last superhero movie we got was Spider-Man Far From Home. That came out in July 2019. So this movie feels like it's a brand new superhero movie, even though it's just a rehash of one that we already saw. So that also helped. Then there's all of the Josh Whedon stuff where more and more of these stories keep coming out about what a piece of garbage he is and how it was a toxic set and blah, blah, blah. That Boost Zack Snyder's profile and this movie's profile it's just like a confluence of events that made this Zack Snyder cut happen and okay cool now it exists and we can watch the same basic movie with the same basic story except it's four hours because every single thing needs to happen in slow motion and because he made it in 4-3 in full screen the slow-mo shots take even longer to pan across from left to right because there's so much less screen real estate no wonder it's four hours i will say uh batman
0: in this uh, universe he curses uh he cursed in batman v superman right after uh batman's about to die and he goes oh shit Wonder Woman, She's the first time we ever see her and she pops out of nowhere and, and saves Batman, so him cursing is not uh, not new in this universe but uh, I thought the epilogue uh, was, was uh, I agree with you it's never going to be made, and I like that it's not going to be made, because I think it's just intriguing that we don't ever have to see it. I believe the trilogy was supposed to be in Justice League, they fight Steppenwolf in the second part, they'd fight uh, Darkseid, which is kind of like uh, DC's Thanos And in the third part, they were going to fight this, like, dark Superman, that Batman was the cause of it, and and somehow uh, they were going to have to get some kind of redemption. Neither of us saw Suicide Squad, right? No, I saw Suicide Squad. Oh, you did? Okay, so I I never saw it, and I've always held out against it. Just everything I heard, it sounds terrible. I'll say having only seen 60 seconds of Jared Leto's Joker, and I understand it's completely different in the look and sound of the Suicide Squad Joker, I thought it was a cool Joker. So uh, for me, I thought that this was an
1: intriguing little tease. The scene with the Joker is kind of interesting in what it sets up, but it also then completely negates the other epilogue scene with uh, Lex Luthor and Deathstroke, that like, oh, Deathstroke is going to find out Batman's secret identity and go after him that way. And then two seconds later, like Batman and Deathstroke are working together. So like whatever they were setting up in that other scene is completely moot and pointless if the world is turned into this wasteland. Also, like you could argue that Thanos making a glove and snapping his fingers is, like, a kind of a lame plot point for 20 movies. But something called the Anti-Life Equation, like, that doesn't sound intimidating at all. It's an equation. Equations aren't scary. But, um, you know, the final thing I'll say about this is that What you said is exactly right.
0: The only reason this film exists is not because of the fan petitions, but because HBO Max was launched. And they wound up actually throwing a a reported $70 million at at this film. But they made a blockbuster film for $70 million, which you just cannot do. And this film absolutely sold maybe millions of subscriptions just based on this alone. That's what they want to do. I just think it's going to be very interesting If, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, there were all these things like, oh, we'll get to see the deleted scene on the DVD. And I think it's going to be kind of cool if uh, if movies that are popular enough, even if they're not received well in the
1: theater, they might get a second chance with streaming outlets. I I think that's kind of intriguing. Maybe. I don't know. I just feel like the fact that they spent 70 million dollars on this is just insane to me. Like, so Steppenwolf's outfit can look a little different. Like okay it blows my mind we already had a justice league so to spend 70 million dollars to have a slightly different justice league that's just has a lot more slow-mo like really like that's what you spent your 70 million dollars on
0: i disagree with you that's slightly different And a lot of people disagree with you. But there's two camps. There's either the it's an improvement in pretty much every way, or it was a longer version of Hot Garbage. And there's basically only two things that you come out of that uh, Zack Snyder cut thinking. And you think one
1: way, I think the other. To be clear, there are things in the Snyder cut that I like. There are improvements in terms of this story and how they fleshed out Cyborg. And this movie gave us more... Amy Adams as Lois Lane, that's always a good thing. Harry Lennox as Martian Manhunter, that's pretty cool. Like, would have liked to have seen more of him. And look, by all accounts, Zack Snyder is a much better human being than Joss Whedon. Uh, You know, he dedicated this movie to his late daughter. The production of this movie raised a ton of money for suicide prevention. That is an amazing, wonderful thing. But as a movie itself, that's four hours of my life I'm never going to get back. And however long we spent talking about it right now. Just as a rule, though, if you have Joe Morton in a film, Joe Morton, is
0: uh, he plays Cyborg's father. He was Miles Dyson in Terminator 2. When you have that actor, you don't cut all of his scenes. He is such a good actor. I loved seeing more of him in the film.
1: Yeah, yeah, all the extra stuff with Cyborg was great. Some of the extra stuff with The Flash was not so great. But let's talk about a movie that has some similarities to Justice League in that it's about a team coming together. Not to thwart evil or save the world, but to save Rodney Dangerfield's job. Let's talk about Ladybugs. So this is a movie that I remember seeing ages ago. I didn't really remember a lot about it, but it just kind of came up in conversation that Courtney thought that our daughter would like it. I was like, yeah, we should watch Ladybugs and the hell with it. Let's do it on the podcast. And we're going to do two more movies that have similar themes of Guys dressing as girls, girls dressing as guys. Next week, we're going to do Just One of the Guys, and then we're going to follow it up with She's the Man, and we'll see what we think of these kinds of movies, one from the 80s, one from the 90s, one from the 2000s. We're starting with the one from the 90s because I thought of Ladybugs first, and then we were like, oh, and what about Just One of the Guys? Oh, and what about She's the Man? So maybe we should have started with uh, Just One of the Guys, but oops, oh well. So Ladybugs is about a salesman named Chester who's trying to impress his boss by coaching a girl's soccer team called the Ladybugs. The only problem is they stink. But luckily, Chester's girlfriend's son happens to be a soccer prodigy. So Chester does what any good coach would do. He has Matthew dress up as a girl to help the team win. James, I don't really remember when this movie came out, but I can't imagine that it was a blockbuster.
0: You know, amazingly, this film somehow had a $20 million budget. And it came out on March twenty seventh, 1992. That's a pretty decent budget for for a film in the early 90s. But uh, it it did not make its money back. It opened at number five with $5 million. And uh, number one that week, uh, it was a film that we reviewed. And I'll give you a hint of what it was. A pivotal scene in that movie involved Reebok pumps. White men can't jump. That's right. Yeah, yeah. White man can't jump uh, was number one that week, and that's the week it came out. And this movie, uh, with a budget of twenty million, that opened with five million, it had a, a three times multiplier, and only uh, wound up grossing fifteen million dollars domestically. So probably not a great investment. Um, you know, back in the eighties and nineties and two thousands. When Hollywood got their hands on uh, Teen Heartthrob, they throw this guy into like five films in a row. I remember uh, like 20 years ago, they did this with Freddie Prinze Jr. He seemed to be in a film like every six months. This is an actor, you know, we should uh, mention it, that the two principals of this film, uh, Rodney Dangerfield and Jonathan Brandis, that they're both deceased. Rodney Dangerfield, of course, died of uh, health-related issues at an old age. But Jonathan Brandis, he was this uh, young man who he starred in a a lot of uh, mildly successful films. Uh, He was in the sequel to The Never-Ending Story. Uh, He was in a decently successful uh, NBC series with uh, Roy Scheider that was produced by Steven Spielberg called Sequest, uh, DSV, and he was in a lot of films that were, you know, mid-budget like this. Unfortunately, he didn't really make that transition from child star to adult star, and apparently the story is that uh, he auditioned to be Anakin Skywalker, and, you know, when you look at Hayden Christensen in in 2002, you can really see, you know, he had a
1: shot at, uh, at the look they were going for, You could make the argument that Jonathan Brandis looks more like Mark Hamill than Hayden Christensen. Uh, He also, by the way, auditioned for Jack Dawson, the Leonardo DiCaprio role in Titanic. Mm. Oh, I could see that. He was in a film called Heart's War with uh,
0: Bruce Willis that wound up being cut. He thought that was going to be his his comeback. Tragically, uh, he was so depressed uh, about uh, where his life had gone that at the young age of 27, he committed suicide.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he was struggling in his career and that sucks and that's awful, but permanent solution to a temporary problem, you know, like he, he could have come back, he could have bounced back and it's tragic that, that uh, he took his own life.
0: I just feel like he would have wound up being successful. I remember when he killed himself because my little sister had a big thing for him. Like he he was a big like Tiger Beat magazine kind of guy, and and my little sister Amanda, who who uh, was on the show for Billy Madison, she was very into him, and I, I liked him. I, I liked uh, some of the movies he was in. I saw Neverending Story two in the theater. I didn't like the movie, but he was in some like Chuck Norris films, and he was in a lot of like you know meh films, and I. I I saw the first couple episodes of DSV, but I think it was on at the same time as Lois and Clark, if I remember correctly, on Sunday night. So I watched that Maybe. Superman show more. Uh, yeah, it's 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 unfortunate. But, uh, you know, this was a, one of his shots of superstardom.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the movie definitely plays into the fact that he's dreamy. He's good-looking. He's got the hair. There's a love interest, and they kiss, and it's all in slow motion. I mean, like, it's painfully clear that, like, hey, girls, you like this boy. Isn't he dreamy? And he is. He's a good-looking guy. But the movie doesn't start with him. It starts with Chester, who is Rodney Dangerfield. And he's at like one of these motivational speaker conferences kind of a thing. And the gag is that he's a loser and he needs to talk himself up so that he can get this promotion at work because he wants to have more money because he wants to marry his girlfriend and give her a nice wedding and a nice life. And he can't do that at his current salary. But it's also... Kind of weird because this guy is the number one salesman in his company. So you would think that, one, he would be pulling in a decent salary if he's a number one salesman. Salesmen usually have a a commission. So if he's doing that well in sales, he should be doing all right financially. Also, if you're a good salesman, doesn't that mean that you have confidence or that at least you can project confidence? So why is he in this seminar saying, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people like me? This setup doesn't really pay off necessarily because it's really only used
0: for one scene. But, you know, it's the kind of opening to, you know, your typical, uh, you know, sports film. And and I'll say this here, I am a sucker for the the 90s kind of sports formula of, of a movie where you have a sports team like the Mighty Ducks or Little Giants or any of these kind of films where you take a, a group of, you know, terrible kids at sports, you know, something happens to make them, uh, you know, inspired and then they, they win in the end. But uh, the only inspirational part from the it's kind of like a Tony Robbins kind of uh, seminar is that uh, the the motivational uh, speech kind of tells him like, you know, kiss up to the boss, which is a weird kind of way to motivate yourself. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, It's not like have confidence in yourself. It's like, just do what you need to do. Kiss up to the boss. But yeah, it's not necessarily bad advice if you're trying to get a, a promotion. But the boss is really obsessed with this girls' soccer team, like, like, like a middle school girls soccer team that apparently Mullen Industries, this company has been sponsoring for years and they're usually champions.
1: It's not that they sponsored the team, it's that Mr. Mullen's daughter plays on the team and so they have to win because Mr. Mullen is extremely competitive and Mrs. Mullen wants them to win. It's a status thing that among their rich friends, their daughter's soccer team has to be the champions and it's it's thin you know like why this means so much to them even for like oh dumb boss? Like, why would you make someone who can coach your daughter's soccer team the head of your sales department? Like, how are those two things connected? It's all, like, stupid. I will say, though, that the, uh, the boss's wife is played by this woman, Janetta Arnett, who I recognize from Head of the Class. She's a beautiful woman. I think I had a crush on her back when I used to watch Head of the Class. But it's all just, like, really contrived to get the plot from A to B to C.
0: Yeah. And uh, another thing about this scene as Ron, he's kind of getting a little more confidence and he's about to go to the boss to, to try to get a promotion. He's kind of playfully flirting with the boss's secretary. Everything he's saying is straight out of like a sexual harassment. Uh, no, no video today. It was so test of timey that it's like you, you just don't comment on a person's looks and they're like, hey, you're going to be turning
1: heads in that. I mean, he goes up to her and is like, hey, sexy, and then he's saying, I can't believe you're still single, but if you want to, like, practice having sex until you meet the right guy, hey, I'm your man. Like, it's not just playful flirting. It is way over the top. It's all played for laughs, but yeah, I mean, obviously, this does not stand the test of time, that this is, like, all in good fun and just a thing you can say to the boss's secretary. I mean, there's a lot of things in this film that for a film that's, you know, I'm
0: sure this film's PG. PG-13. Oh, it is PG-13. Okay, because that at least makes sense, because there are a lot of straight-up sex jokes. Like, hey, the only thing that's faster than that is me having sex. And, like, there's a lot of lines like this in the film. So is this supposed to be for, like, 10-year-old girls to like, or, or is this supposed to be for adults to laugh at?
1: That's a really good question, and I... Don't think that it's clear. You know, they're trying to give the sexy Jonathan Brandis to the teenage girls, but they're also making Rodney Dangerfield jokes for the older men and women. And it's sort of like trying to be something for everyone. And it kind of ends up being something for no one. Uh, For example, with one of these inappropriate Rodney Dangerfield jokes and like inappropriate for kids, Chester has this assistant who's played by Jack A., Full name, Jack A. Henry, but in this movie, she's credited as Jack A., who I remember from 227. And she's his assistant at the job, and he drags her to be his assistant coach. And they're talking about, like, who's good on the team. And she says that the black girl is the only one who's good on the team and that black people are the best in sports. And then Chester's like, oh, yeah, what about hockey and water polo and fencing and badminton and yachting and fox hunting? And that's like a Rodney Dangerfield joke, which whatever but yeah is that like the kind of joke that 13 year old girls are gonna laugh at who are swooning over jonathan Brandis? like i i don't know it's it's two very different vibes there a fox hunting joke (laughs) and the fact that he's counting fox hunting as a sport like mm, sorry
0: no yeah but, you know, anyway, the team that was fantastic over the last few years has lost uh, maybe a, a lot of its star players and also, more importantly, lost its coach. And And he sees all the trophies there and he's like, hey, I love soccer. And when they're like, are you a sweeper, uh, fullback? Uh, and he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a kicker. I do everything. I play every position. And uh, he talks his way into being the coach of, of this team, the Ladybugs. So he shows up at this field and the These girls have basically never played soccer before.
1: Right. The only girl who was a holdover from the team was the black girl that Jack A was saying was the best on the team. But Kimberly, the boss's daughter, is a holdover from the previous year, too. But... That kind of contradicts what they say, that the only holdover from the team was the black girl. But no, they say that before Kimberly shows up because Kimberly gets there late. So I guess there are two holdovers from the previous year. But whatever. The point is, is that the team is really bad and Chester has his work cut out for him. He doesn't know what to do. They get creamed in their first game, and then he goes home, and he's talking with his girlfriend, Bess, and Bess has a teenage son, Matthew, who's Jonathan Brandis, and he's really good at sports, but he's having trouble in school, and he gets kicked off the soccer team, and then Chester has this idea, aha, what if you join my soccer team? Like, he's in the car with Matthew, and
0: Matthew's like, well, if I was playing, uh, you know, this is what I would do. And Chester just looks at him, and Matthew goes, no way, Chester, it'll never happen, no way, no way! And then you get a smash cut to him in a dress and wig. Like, it's really weird, like, he just looks at him, and he's like... Hey, how about dressing as a woman and pretending you're a different gender so you can be in this team? Like,
1: there's a look like that that implies that plot? Yeah, no, no, no. I can do that exact look right now. Listeners, you won't be able to see it. But here you go, James. Oh, okay. I I see the look. I see what you're talking about. Yeah. Um but the reason that it works without that dialogue is because everyone seeing this movie has seen the poster, has seen the trailer and they know. They get it. They get what's going to happen. And even if you didn't for whatever reason, the second you're introduced to Martha, who is Matthew as a girl, it's not like confusing like wait, who's that girl? Like it's very clearly Jonathan Brandis in a wig doing a very very slightly higher voice but also only sometimes sometimes martha says oh hello but most of the time she's like oh hello i, I don't know if like jonathan Brandis forgot to do the voice or what but it's terribly inconsistent yeah, I agree with you. You know, it's like in Mrs. Doubtfire.
0: He's always like has that British accent unless comedy calls for him to say, hey, what are you looking at, buddy? There is no rhyme or reason to why he has uh, a girl or boy's voice, because a lot of times he's just straight up talking like a boy. And <laughs> it's it's very odd, but there doesn't seem to be Any reason why Matthew goes along with this farce, Uh, it seems to imply, you know, your typical trope that he doesn't like this guy that's dating his mom. And why does he agree to do
1: this? Because he sees that. Chester makes his mom happy. There's that one moment where they're talking and she's saying about how she's so excited to get married. And she's sorry that she's so giddy about the wedding invitations, but she just can't wait to get married to him. And he loves his mom and he sees that Chester makes her happy. And he understands that in order for them to get married, Chester has to make this team be champions for whatever reasons we have been told so that's why he just shrugs his shoulders and goes along with it it's thin i mean it's definitely thin but that's the sort of like connective tissue
0: that scene that you're talking about, it's the typical sports uh, formula, they get killed in the first game, then the ringer comes in, that's you know the the good player that, that turns the team around a little bit except in this film, kind of another trope, he's a little bit too good and he's not a team player and he quits, because uh, Chester's like, hey, you gotta be more of a team player but then, he like decides to rejoin the team, then that's when he says, oh, well you make my mom happy and you're not a bad guy, Chester so I'll, I will rejoin, I thought maybe it's because he sees Kimberly's on the team and he's like, I want to be on that team, so she'll notice me. But it's like, dude, she's not going to notice Matthew. She's going to notice Martha. So I feel like there's definitely a, a missing motivational uh, point here. But uh, yeah, the, the point is that he uh, he does uh, decide to be a team player on this team.
1: Right. And the first game that he plays in, they win. After they win, Chester and his assistant and mr and mrs mullen are all like so excited and they're all hugging each other but chester keeps going to hug mrs mullen the boss's wife because she's this beautiful younger woman and he actually goes to hug her four times and it's one of those things where like the joke is pretty funny and then they do it again and it starts to get a little bit less funny but then they do it again and it actually gets funnier again that kind of made me laugh But then all of the girls are invited to Kim's house to go skinny dipping, which is like obviously a problem for Matthew because he is a boy. But it's like, come on, what 13, 14 year old girls like go to their friend's house to go skinny dipping after they won a soccer game? Like I was watching this with Courtney and she was like, come on.
0: And did they need it to be skinny dipping? I mean, you know, girls wearing bathing suits and boys wearing bathing suits. There is no way to hide the you know boy parts. Like, totally, he could not have—he's 12 years old. He could, you know, explain why he doesn't have breasts. But, like, uh, there's something else I think they're bound to notice.
1: Right, right. No, that's a very, very good point. But Chester shows up to pick Martha up and he's in drag for that one scene. I guess that's something comedy fans really wanted to see this legend of stand up in drag for, you know, one scene. I mean, it's a classic, uh, I
0: mean, literally classic. I mean, it comes from Shakespeare and even, like, ancient Rome. Like, men playing women and women disguised as men. And this whole film, like like the other films that we're going to discuss, She's the Man and and Just One of the Guys, Shakespeare had this play, Twelfth Night, and it's kind of, a men dressing as the other gender, and then you fall in love with them, kind of, and it, it reveals at the end, Robin Williams does it really funny. And, and there was a very famous film, I'm sure we're going to review at one point, uh, where Dustin Hoffman... Uh, uh, plays a uh, character Tootsie, and until Titanic, you know that Tootsie had the lo- record for the number one uh, times that a film was ever number one. It was number one for like three months in a row. I mean, this is a very popular concept, and it's painfully unfunny when when Ronnie Dangerfield shows up as a
1: woman. I didn't think it was painfully unfunny. I didn't think it was funny, but it didn't strike me as like the opposite of funny. It was just like. Yeah, okay, because I remember that he was in a dress at one point in this movie, and I didn't remember exactly when that happened. They could have done
0: so much with Rodney dressing like this. He could have had a scene where he's in the car and he's like, Hey, I mean, I'm, I'm in a dress and these pantyhose aren't fitting me. Hey, I get no respect here. Even as a woman, they won't even say I'm good looking. You know, there's, there's a lot of Rodney stuff you could do. And I just didn't think this was, uh, I didn't think this was a funny scene. I, You know, I, I thought it was a waste of Rodney.
1: Speaking of a waste of Rodney, during The obligatory montage of the team doing better, there's Rodney Dangerfield and Jack Hay singing Great Balls of Fire, which is like, wait, what? Why? It's just so random. The montage ends with you see them all like in the car and like they're driving to a soccer game or a soccer practice or whatever. And that's where Chester and Jack Hay are singing along with the song. But, like, when it starts, you're like, wait, why is this Great Balls of Fire version being sung by Rodney Dangerfield? And then Jack A starts. and like, wait, what the hell is happening? It's just so bizarre. I always think that
0: these 90s sports films, the montage song, to me, always screams the cheapest song that they could license, that people will kind of recognize. And, you know, Great Balls of Fire is a a classic great song. But, like, I, I just feel like it's the cheapest thing that they could come up with.
1: Maybe that's where the $20 million budget went.
0: Yeah, I mean, in uh, in Mrs. Doubtfire, where they had a much larger budget, they have the, the appropriate, I guess, you know, for the film, dude looks like a lady, and, you know, Aerosmith is going to cost a lot more than Great Balls of Fire. So it was a silly montage, but obligatory. It's basically a by-the-numbers montage.
1: Right. Um, there's a scene where Chester has to take Matthew out to buy— him slash her i'm not really sure how to work the pronouns here uh but to buy more girls clothes and like the gag is well what size would you say he is the dress is for uh 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 his twin sister and then they're in the dressing room and he's helping him like into the dress and there are all of these not-so-subtle innuendos of like, oh, don't worry if it doesn't fit. You'll just have to squeeze it in. And then there's like a an older woman waiting for the dressing room, and she faints because, oh my! You, you can't have a movie like this and not have that kind of a gag, I guess, because that's what Rodney Dangerfield is there for, I guess. I'm being dismissive, but I will say that there were a few times that Rodney Dangerfield doing the Rodney Dangerfield shtick did make me laugh in this movie. I mean, I agree with you that they're
0: going to kind of make that joke. But when you think about it and that woman's like, oh, my, you know, maybe an appropriate joke would be like, wait, didn't I see a a, a boy go in there? And then who's this girl? And like, she's all confused. But isn't this kind of a child rape joke? Like he's like, hey, stick it in, even if it's tight. No, Chester. No, no, it's not working.
1: I guess it's a child rape joke. Yeah, it's a joke about the perception of child rape, which is maybe a subtle but important distinction. You could make a, you know, a by-the-numbers joke like
0: this that doesn't involve the implication that he's raping this other kid in there.
1: Right, right. But even though Matthew has all of these other outfits as Martha... Guess who comes over? Kimberly, the girl that Matthew likes, but she just wants to be friends with Martha. And as she shows up, then Chester and his mom show up and he has to like run from room to room and change. It's running into the room and then running up the stairs and then sliding down the pole down the stairs into the basement to get the clothes and then walk into the room. And then he walks into the other room. But oops, he's still wearing the wig. And Chester has to rip off the wig at the last possible second. And, you know, again, this is an obligatory scene that has to be in a movie like this. And it's, I guess, mildly amusing. Matthew seems to get away with it. But then, like, as he's going into the house for the final time to change, then his mom sees him dressed as Martha. And she's like, what's going on? And Chester and Matthew come clean. And she's furious. And she kicks him out. And... It's the low point for the character. He goes to a bar and is, you know, he's like, Oh, I need another drink. And the bartender's like, Tell me what happened. And then Chester tells him what happened. And of course, the bartender throws him out because, Hey, get out of here, you pervert.
0: The way he explains it is he says it in a way that doesn't imply that, you know, he was just having a, you know, a well intended, uh, my future stepson was trying to help me out on the girls' team. He basically says it like, I was trying to get my stepson to be a girl so we could I could have my way. Like, the way he says it, it sounds, right. again, it's kind of a child rape joke. So right. he gets thrown out. And the girls, had, they had made it to the championship team. And actually, Matthew shows up to the game holding a shopping bag. And Chester's like, hey, what's that? And he, he says, well, I got Martha in the bag. He dresses up as Martha. And all the girls are like, yay, Martha's back. Because, of course, they got killed in the first half. Of the uh, game. And, uh, you know, he comes back, but then reveals he's not Martha.
1: So they are getting killed in the game because the other team, you know, they're amazing. By the way, did you recognize the coach of the other team? No, no. It's this guy that plays the, uh, the coach. He's like a militant coach. Yeah, but he's, like, in every Adam Sandler movie. Uh, His name is Blake Clark. He's the hillbilly guy in The water boy who, like, you know, kind of does and and no one can understand him. I think in real life he's friends with Adam Sandler. Every Adam Sandler movie he's in. I I think for the trope he's playing, I, I think he's amusing. They're doing army
0: crawls, and he's like, move it, move it, move it. And he does what he needs to do. He does it well.
1: Right, but this team is so amazing, and they score two goals in like the first thirty seconds of the game, and then at halftime they're winning three nothing. And it's like, wait, how did the ladybugs only allow them to score one more time in the rest of the half? Like that makes no sense. That's a very good point. Also, then the Wienermobile is at halftime, and like I have a secret confession. I love the Wienermobile. Like I would love in my life to get to drive it or even just be on it or even just take a picture in front of it. Like that's on my bucket list for some really weird reason. I don't even know what the reason is. I just think the Wienermobile is really cool. And uh, I will say, you know, because we do have
0: our international following, uh, if you don't know what it is, uh, the Wienermobile is basically a huge truck that is shaped like an enormous hot dog in a bun on wheels. And it really has no reason to exist other than advertising the Oscar Mayer uh, hot dog company. So it's it's a Wienermobile. It is just kind of
1: funny. And they don't do anything with the Wienermobile. They've got a great prop here. Yeah, like that had to have cost some of their budget to have the Wienermobile there. And yeah, you're right. They don't do anything funny with it. Maybe there's a deleted scene somewhere where something happens.
0: Does it cost anything to have the Wienermobile or do you maybe even get like five grand or maybe like uh, Oscar Mayer like sponsored the uh, craft
1: services table or something? Maybe, maybe. I don't know how that works. But um, if so, then that's a smart move to have the Wienermobile uh, in your movie. (laughs) It's always a smart move to have the Wienermobile. Star Wars should have the Wienermobile in its movies. Right, right. Uh, but Kimberly is doing a really bad job at playing soccer. So Mr. Mullen tells Chester, you can't let her play. And remember, the whole reason that Chester is coaching this team is to make his boss happy. But this is where like the motivational speaker thing from the beginning does kind of pay off because In the beginning of the movie, all he was doing was kissing his boss's ass. And here he confronts the boss. He's like, Why do you care so much? And Mullen's like, We have to be the best. And Chester says, Well, what good is being the best if it brings out the worst in you? And, you know, he basically says, I'm putting Kimberly in the game, even though his boss is telling him not to. He stands up for himself. He stands up for Kimberly. He does the right thing. And wouldn't you know it, the game comes down to a penalty kick. Kimberly takes the shot. And listeners, I got a real shocker for you. She makes it. And the Ladybugs win. You
0: know, there's a couple problems with this final game. For one thing, they take Kimberly out. But the entire team sucks. There's like one girl that's decently, uh, yeah, she has some talent. But everyone else kind of sucks. And, you know, in a lot of these sports films, uh, like The Mighty Ducks, they teach Goldberg how to be a good goalie by taping him to the goal. They start practicing with eggs to learn how to handle the puck and and skating around uh, soda cans to learn how to skate well. There's absolutely no point in this film where the girls learn to be good soccer soccer players and the only thing I could think of is that there's a couple parts where Martha says to the girls like come on we need you to do well you can do it there's this one girl she's kind of uh, portrayed as like the quote unquote ugly girl because ugly by uh, 80s and 90s standards means that your hair is tied up and you have glasses because uh, at one point in the game this girl decides to take out her scrunchie and take off her glasses and she is able to score the second of the team's three goals, and it's just very weird because, like, why would you do better in soccer by taking off your corrective lenses and by having your hair flowing all over the place? I've never been a a female uh, athlete or an athlete with long hair, but it seems like every single athlete ties their hair back, and it seems like it's done for a reason.
1: Yeah, you can even see her as she's running down the field brushing the hair out of her face. And, like, you got to figure what's in the movie is the best take. Like, there's no version of them filming this where she didn't have to brush the hair out of her face. Like, it's that stupid.
0: And also just the lesson of like, oh, come on, you're pretty. I mean, this is a trope in, in Hollywood, but you shouldn't have that lesson. Because all these other girls that are watching it, they might not be pretty. And it's not like, oh, all I have to do is take off my glasses and I'll be beautiful. It's a really annoying trope in these films. And it's
1: also stupid. Why does looking better help you score a goal? <laughs> exactly. It makes no sense. It makes Absolutely no sense. The only
0: lessons that are learned that are kind of your by-the-numbers ones are, are that uh, Martha tells them, you know, you don't need me to win. Uh, you could win on your own, which is fine. But there's no real reason why they're able to beat this championship-level team. And also, uh, you know, Kim, she's able to, you know, win her parents' love because she wins the final game. That's how she's able to win her parents' love. And then there's a little epilogue.
1: Right. The epilogue is Mullen and Chester talking. They're on a bus with a bunch of boys who are going to a baseball game. And through this conversation, we get that Chester got the promotion. He married Bess. There's a joke of like, oh, we're going to hear the pitter patter of little feet pretty soon. And you're like, wait, Chester and his girlfriend seem like they're past their childbearing years. And then it's like, no, no, my mother-in-law is coming to visit. That's the pitter patter of little feet. But dum bum Yeah,
0: and there's also this weird joke where the boss is like, I hear your stepson Matthew is seeing a lot of my daughter Kim. And Chester's response is, more than you know. Is the response like, yes, they are dating and they're having
1: sex. Like, how else do you interpret that he's seeing a lot more of her than you know? Right. Like, Chester did get the promotion he was after. But Mr. Mullen is still his boss, so maybe that's not the wisest thing to say.
0: Yeah, and uh, the boys' uh, baseball team arrives, and there's a little cameo outside. It's uh, Tommy Lasorda, the, the late Tommy Lasorda. He was a uh, very famous, uh, kind of a hot headed uh, manager for the LA Dodgers. And he's like, Hey, I heard a rumor that you dressed a boy as a girl on a soccer team. And, uh, you know, Chester, the boss, are like, What? That's ridiculous. How dare you make such an accusation? And then they're like, All right, team, let's win one. And you know that lesson we just learned about how you just have to be yourself and we don't need Martha to win a soccer game and, you know, it's not right to cheat to try to win. Well, in the last second of this film, they completely negate that because this boy's uh, baseball team that we had seen on the bus—they all come off the bus wearing like wigs, and I, I think I think they're wearing like skirts or something. So, is this entire corporation
1: about cheating? Like, what what is the gag here? The gag is, hey, we learned the lesson, but not really. And if that wasn't enough of a button for you, the final, final joke of the movie is Rodney Dangerfield looking to camera and saying, I finally get some respect. Because in real life, Rodney Dangerfield's catchphrase was, I get no respect. And it's like, okay, so he broke the fourth wall in the last minute for that. (sighs) All right. All right, Al, um, I'm going to
0: ask you, we're at the end of uh, Ladybugs, what do you think? Does this
1: film stand the test of time? No, no, it definitely does not. Like I was saying before, it's trying to be something for everyone and it just doesn't work. Like, I can't imagine teen girls loving this movie. Yeah, maybe they loved looking at Jonathan Brandis, but... What about all the Rodney Dangerfield stuff? I can't imagine diehard Rodney Dangerfield fans loving this movie because there's all that, like, kids stuff. If you're a fan of sports movies, this movie glazes over, like, all of the important sports beats of, you know, the team coming together and learning how to actually play the game, like you were saying. There's just so much missing from this movie. It's by the numbers. It's rote. It's, like, not that interesting... There's nothing unpredictable that happens. It's just exactly what you think it's going to be. And yeah, there are some jokes that are funny. There are some gags that land, but it doesn't stand the test of time as like a quality film in any sense. And I'm willing to give the makers of this movie the benefit of the doubt that they weren't thinking about this next thing I'm going to say at all while they were making the movie. But isn't The plot of this movie, like the nightmare scenario of these Republican lawmakers who are passing all of these anti-trans laws that, well, we can't allow trans girls on our sports teams because then boys will get dressed up as girls and pretend to be girls, and then those teams will win, and that's not fair, and that's why we need to make all of these horribly restrictive laws. Like, no, that's not why any young person would transition to win a sports game but like it seems like they are deathly afraid of the plot of ladybugs coming to life which is the stupidest <laughs> fucking thing to like make laws about you know there's a lot of mass shootings maybe we should make some laws about that no 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 no. We, we're not gonna worry about that but a boy on a girl's sports team we definitely need to have at least 20 laws on the books to prevent that from happening so even if the People behind this movie weren't thinking about that when they made this movie. I don't think that a movie like this with a similar plot could get made today because of that. So that's just one more reason why the movie does not stand the test of time. What do you think? You've got to agree with me, right? Yeah, I'm going to agree with some stuff you're saying,
0: but not not entirely. Uh, one, I was thinking very similar to you, that uh, in the age of transgender, uh, you know, more acceptance, I was thinking... All they have to do today to get Martha on the team is just convince Matthew to kind of say, I I identify as a girl, now he can play. And you could almost make... Uh, probably a very modern, uh, decent film because let's assume the character of Martha is not transgender. You know, that's an inappropriate thing to do. Like what you were saying, there's nobody that's going to go through uh, transitioning to try to get on this team. That's just not a realistic thing that's going to happen. So you could probably make a point of like, yeah, he lies about it. He makes a terrible mistake. And then, you know, he learns why. Maybe there's another kid on the team that is transgender, blah, blah, blah. He realizes like why, you know, joking about it wasn't right. But one thing I disagree with you on, Al, is that this is not a by-the-numbers sports film. I love by-the-numbers ninety sports films. <laughs> and you have step one, they're a terrible team that loses. Step two, there's a ringer. Step three, there's a motivational speech that helps them win. And step four, they're losing the uh, championship game in the first half. Something happens at uh, halftime, and then finally they win in the last second. And if it's soccer or hockey, it has to be a penalty penalty. penalty shot. Those are the numbers and it's missing a lot of that. There's no reason why this team gets better and there's no lesson they learn about like how to do better. Even their final game, like it makes no sense. It's not like the mighty ducks where they pull like a trick play and they're able to to outsmart a team that might technically be more talented, but no, their solution is to have a girl take off her glasses and then somehow win. Uh, You know, a lot of this doesn't make sense, but you know something we'd uh call in the industry a callback. I would say that as terrible as it would be to have to suffer through it, I'll bet you that a four hour version of ladybugs might answer some of the missing parts in this and might actually fill in all those things that are missing. It doesn't work in any way well, that's not true, not anyway. I'll say that the things that do work is that um I think the girls on the team are, are all charming. You you mentioned it. There's a couple times in Rodney, you know, his shtick does make you chuckle because just he was so good at just terrible dialogue. He even made kind of funny. And, you know, we we mentioned before, but, you know, Jonathan Brandis, he is a good actor. And, you know, for what he does, I think he's perfectly fine in the film. So those things work. And a better script could have worked in this film. This film, Ladybugs, it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't stand the test of
1: time for a lot of reasons. Um, while you were mentioning that maybe there's a director's cut of this movie that's longer and better, I did just want to point out, do you know who directed this movie? It's like a brilliant director. Uh, his name is Sidney Fury, and he directed Superman 4 colon The Quest for Peace.
0: Okay, so this is not a cool-as-ice situation where you have a terrible film, but from the cinematographer of Schindler's List, you know, it's not that situation.
1: You have a terrible director of a terrible film. He also directed Iron Eagle, which maybe we should do on the podcast at some point. Hell yeah, we're going to do that film. But just to, you know, bring it all full circle with, uh you know, Superman and DC movies and directors and director's cuts and everything—
0: and there actually is an extended version of Superman 4, which makes the film even worse. I don't know if you've ever seen
1: it, when there's yeah. like a second fake Superman. Yeah. But that's going to do it for us this week. Come back next week when we will talk about Just One of the Guys, a movie where a girl dresses up as a guy. I've seen it. I don't remember much, but I do know that William Zapka's in it, Johnny Lawrence from The Karate Kid, and Cobra Kai. So it's always good to see that guy in a movie. It will be the fourth William Zabka film that we've done. Do you remember the the four films we've done with him? He was also in The Karate Kid and The Karate Kid Part 2 and Back to School, which also starred Rodney Dangerfield. It all comes full circle. It all connects, man. And that's why you got to listen to this podcast. That's why you got to subscribe. That's why you got to like and rate rate us on Apple Podcasts. This is our 251st episode. I mean, if you haven't rated us on Apple Podcasts yet, come on! What are you waiting for? Also, talk to us on social media. We are at Tested Time Pod. We love hearing from you. Let us know your favorite movie where a boy gets dressed up as a girl or a girl gets dressed up as a boy. Whether it's to win at sports or for any other reason, let us know. And uh, we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye.